My name is Chad Cruiser. This is my wife, Fadi. If you haven't met us yet, and I'm sure we'll be meeting probably each and every one of you while we're here. Uh, I'm originally from Grand Rapids, Michigan. My wife was originally from Baghdad, Iraq, and moved to the States very young. And then uh, she moved to Chicago. And so we were not, we were just across the pond from each other, we could say. And uh, we travel around, we put on seminars about the Bible, Bible prophecy, overcoming habits and addictions, uh, Bible memorization, different things like that. Um, and since I'm filling in for Jonathan tonight, I'm going to share with you uh, a message that I've shared in the past about the identity of Christ and the identity that each of us is to have in Christ. And to begin with, you may have heard of the Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. Josephus wrote a book called The Antiquities of the Jews. Josephus tells an amazing story, absolutely amazing story. He tells about Alexander the Great and how Alexander was actually off. He was fighting a battle uh, in Tyre. He was actually, he was sieging the city of Tyre and he wanted to take it over, but he was really having some difficulties. And so he called over to the high priest in Jerusalem, whose name at the time was Jadis. He called over to the high priest and he said, will you send me some men to fight and maybe some, uh, some help in different ways, maybe food and different rations, different things. And the priest, uh, his response to Alexander, now listen, you're, you're, this is one of the most powerful men on the planet. You would think he would say, yeah, whatever you need. But he says, listen, I cannot help you because I have promised Darius that as long as he is in the land of the living, I will not do anything to fight against him. And do you think Alexander the Great appreciated a response like that? Alexander was furious. And so what he decided is that the very next thing, after he would destroy Tyre, he was going to go over to Jerusalem and destroy the people in Jerusalem and obviously uh, put the high priest to shame himself. Well, what ended up happening? You can imagine the high priest Jadis realizes this. He's afraid. He's terrified. And so when someone's terrified, what do they do? Well, typically you would pray, right? So what he does is he, he has a serious time of prayer, Josephus tells us. And what, what Jadis does is he prays and prays, and then he's actually given a vision from God. Now, this is not in the Bible. This is just the history from Josephus. And what ends up happening, he is told to do something very special. He's told in his dream that he needs to put on his high priestly garb, and then his, his other priests are to put on their, you know, white, white garb, and they, they are to walk out. When Alexander comes to take over the city of Jerusalem, they're to go out walking kind of in a processional to meet him as he comes. Now, obviously, that would be a very dangerous thing to do. Well, what ends up happening? Alexander, he fights. He ultimately takes over the city of Tyre, and the time comes where he has his soldiers with him, and they're making their way to the city of Jerusalem, and the high priest has told his, his priests what to do. They gather together, and as Alexander is making his way to Jerusalem, the high priest marches out with this procession. I mean, they just walk out in their pomp and in their garb, and they're walking out to meet Alexander the Great, and Alexander the Great is meeting them. And you can imagine, he's coming potentially to kill them. So I can just imagine, I mean, I don't know, but I imagine the high priest, even though God gave him this dream, have you ever had God kind of tell you, I'm not saying it doesn't have to be a prophetic vision, but have you ever had God tell you to actually do something? And when you were to go do it, you were actually still nervous, even though you knew you should be doing it. I've had that tons of times. 
Jeffrey and I, we've done door-to-door together in the past, and I'll tell you, every single day of my life going door-to-door, I was nervous. Even though I knew the Lord was guiding, I was still nervous to actually do it. Anybody ever had something like that? You've had that before? I mean, it doesn't have to be door-to-door. It could be whatever it is. It could be whatever it is. Maybe God tells you to share something with somebody, or maybe even just comfort somebody, a family member or a friend, and you're nervous to do it. You don't know how to do it. Well, God had told the high priest to do this. And here he is, and he's walking out with his soldiers. And Alexander the Great did something amazing. Instead of, I mean, he did what a general would typically not do. He separated himself totally from all his soldiers. He went off alone to the high priest, and the priests of Jadis surrounded Alexander the Great. Now, would that be a wise thing for a general to do in a battle? Absolutely not. This looked utterly foolish. Well, what ended up happening? One of the soldiers came up to Alexander the Great and they said, what on earth are you doing? They said, why are you doing this? Why are you, it looks like you've given this respect to this high priest. Why would you do that? And he ended up saying, it wasn't me showing the respect. It was his God who is actually showing this respect. He told him, he said, this is what happened. He said, I had a dream. I had a dream back, this is what Alexander the Great said. He said, while I was back in a place called Dion in Macedonia, he said, I saw in a vision this man come out with these men in their their garb, and I haven't seen anybody like this. And while I had seen that vision back in Dion in Macedonia, he said, I was actually told in this situation that I would go forth and I would conquer as I would spread out. And as he talked with the high priest, you know what they did? The high priest brought Alexander the Great back into Jerusalem. And Josephus tells us that what he did was he, well actually he tells us that Alexander the Great sacrificed to the God of Israel, but then he tells us that the high priest opened up the Bible to Alexander the Great. And he showed Alexander a prophecy. Does anybody have a guess what prophecy we're told? What do you think? Daniel 8. Daniel 8 specifically says that there would be a man from what kingdom? Greece, who would come and he would take over the Medo-Persian Empire. Can you imagine what that would be like? Now, think about it. Alexander the Great is no follower of Jehovah, the God of Israel, right? He is a man who, who follows, probably has ideas about pagan gods and whatnot, and yet he comes to Israel, and here he sees this high priest come out to him. He's already seen this man in a vision. I believe that vision was from God. And as he comes to him, that high priest shows him that you are in Bible prophecy. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it would be like? If all of a sudden you were going about your day and you were, you were doing your thing, you were doing whatever you thought you were called to in life, and somebody came up to you and said, hey, can I show you something a minute? And they opened the Bible to you. And as you were looking in the Bible, they said, guess what? The Bible prophesied about you. Can you imagine what that would be like? I can only imagine what that might have, must have been like for Alexander the Great. He sees that Bible prophecy, and then what, what, what Josephus tells us, he says and, and that Alexander thought, well, that must be me. And basically, he went forth conquering and to conquer. This man recognized that his identity was foretold in Bible prophecy. And I think about this, and I think about 
this pertains not only to, jo- to you know, the story Josephus tells us about Alexander. We can see something similar in the life of Jesus, and then we can see something similar in our own lives here in 2016. Let's break this down a little bit. And if you have any thoughts while I'm sharing, please, you can raise your hand, or, or if, if something comes to mind, please talk to me. I, I, I want, I want to, you know, to be able to dialogue, to be able to speak together. Now think about this for a moment. Jesus, we think, while well, he was God, which he was. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Four different things, right? Jesus, the first one says he increased in wisdom. Now, let's think about this. How much does God know? You tell me. How much does God know? Everything. Everything. So then, was Jesus God, yes or no? He was. But the Bible says that he increased in wisdom. How could you increase in wisdom if you are God and you know everything? What do you think? You tell me. What's that? He emptied himself. He actually became what? A human being. You you understand? He was God from all eternity. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 tells us, it says, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from the days of eternity. So he's been around for eternity, Micah 5, verse 2 tells us. But we see that Jesus, when he became a human being, he actually became like us, Right? So when he became a human, he actually had to learn in the same way that you or I would learn. Does that make sense? So he had to learn just like we have to. Which means, you know all the stories in the Old Testament that Jesus was in? You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 through 4 tells us that the rock that was there with Israel, that rock was Christ. Do you remember that? So then here Jesus, he's, he becomes a baby, and he thinks like a baby. He wasn't, it's not like he was thinking all the deep things of God while he was in the, you know, in Bethlehem in, in the manger. He wasn't thinking, you know, calculus and physics, right? And all the things, you know, that God might think about. He was a baby, and he increased in wisdom. He had to actually grow up, and so then we discover we discover that at the age of 12, he ended up going to a specific festival. What was that called? It was a Passover, right? And at the Passover, you remember there's a sacrificial system, and they're they're sacrificing this lamb. And Jesus, at the age of 12, it pierces into his childhood mind. Are you following? Is anybody here 12 years old? Anybody 11 or 13? You're 13. All right. So you're younger than you, right? So you're thinking, here Jesus is. He's grown up with his parents. I'll bet they had told him things. You know what I mean? Like he was in God's true church, as it were. You follow? He was in Israel. And can you imagine, uh, when he was born, there was this guy. This guy who came to the temple and began to prophesy about Jesus. What was that guy's name? Yeah, yeah, Simeon, right? So Simeon takes him and he prophesies over him. 
he had been told that before he would die, he would see the Lord's Christ, Luke tells us in chapter 2. You remember that? So he sees him, and and then he prophesies. He said that this man would bring about the rising and falling of many people, that this man would actually save Israel, actually this child. And then he also told him, he also prophesied over him, that that many would actually speak negatively of him. They would speak really negatively about this one who would come to save Israel. And I can just imagine as Jesus is getting older, don't you think Mary, you know, as she ponders all these things in her heart, maybe she told her son every, from time to time, you know, there's something special about you. It seems God has an amazing plan for your life. I'll bet she did. And, and helped him to know that, yes, this is, this is God's true church. And so here Jesus is growing up, but at the age of 12, he's at the Passover. He sees the lamb sacrifice, and we are told that it was at that time that it, it, it pierced his 12-year-old mind. And he discovered that he was the lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. You follow? So Jesus discovers at one point in his life that he is in Bible prophecy. Does that make sense? So you're going along in your life, and all of a sudden you get to the point where you realize, what on earth? It actually is speaking about me. There are these characteristics of this one who is to come. John, when he saw him coming at his baptism, he said, behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. You follow? So think about that. Jesus hears this, he's already discovered it, and then it must be that he not only discovered he was in the Bible, he not only discovered that Bible prophecy, part of it anyway, was about him. But then he studies it, and he, as he studies the Bible prophecy, then he goes forth, after studying the prophecy that was about himself, he actually goes forth to fulfill the prophecy. So in essence... He discovers his identity from the Bible. Then he studies his identity. Then he goes forth to fulfill the identity God had for him. What do you mean? Well, think about it. How do we know that Jesus actually studied the prophecies? Well, first of all, we know he increased in wisdom. He had to learn just like we do. Uh, We're told that he learned by the open scroll at his mother's knee. So he learns, he discovers who he is. And then in Mark chapter 1, you can look, let, let's just look there real quick. Mark chapter 1. Notice, this is, in the, in the Gospel of Mark, these are the very first words that Mark shares Jesus speaking. This, these are not the very first words he ever spoke, by the way, but these are just the first words of Jesus in Mark chapter 1, the beginning of Mark. Mark chapter 1, and it says in verse 15, these are the very first words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus says, this is just after his baptism. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and what? Believe Believe the gospel. So notice the very first words out of Jesus' mouth in the gospel of Mark are, the time is what? Fulfilled. Fulfilled. Well, what does he mean by that? Jesus is saying, I have studied the prophecies. And I have discovered that there was a prophecy specifically about what I just did. I was just anointed. 
I was baptized. The Holy Spirit came down upon me at my baptism. And Jesus, so he discovers he's in prophecy. He studies the prophecies and he goes forth to fulfill the prophecies. Does that make sense? So this is what Jesus did. We know that he did because he quoted the scriptures no less than 78 times. Jesus just just quotes from the top of his head. Now, how did he know to quote all these things? He had been studying the Word of God. He had been studying it to the point where he actually had portions of Scripture literally memorized, which many of the Jews would do that. And so Jesus goes forth, he discovers his identity, then he studies about it, and he fulfills it. Now, let's bring it down to 2016. Could it be that we this group of, you know, 30 people here are in Bible prophecy. How would you know? Meaning we could come to the point where we study Scripture. And I think over this weekend as we study together, different people presenting different things, what we see is as we look, we see that the Bible prophesied about a specific group of people. And in not just a specific group of people, but it prophesied about a specific time period in earth's history and what the people would be like during that time period. And we have a choice, like Alexander the Great, will we go forth to fulfill the Bible prophecy? We have a choice, like Jesus, will we go forth and fulfill the prophecy? But first of all, you have to discover the prophecies, right? Can anybody think in this room tonight of any prophecies about God's people at the end times? Give me an example. What, would the, what is Revelation 14, 6 through 12? All right, well, you got, yes, you, you got the first angel's message. Good, good. And I, I didn't mean you had to quote the whole thing. That's not what I meant. I meant the three angels' messages. Yes, but thank you. Now, think about it. So we have different characteristics of God's people in the three angels' messages, right? What are some of them there? What are some of the characteristics? We could say they have a primitive godliness. Yes, we can say that. And yes. Verse 12 tells us they, have, they keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. I was just in somebody's house a few weeks ago. I just did an evangelistic series in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I'm sorry, Grand Haven, Michigan. Thank you, wife. And as uh, someone was coming to the meetings there, she said, no, you know, we cannot keep the commandments of God. You know, we always fall. And, and that is, you know, obviously that is the standard thinking in Christianity and much of Christianity. But I said, here's the thing. I cannot change what the Bible says based upon my personal standing and experience. Does that make sense? Like, it's true. I've stumbled over and over and over. But the Bible says in Revelation 14, the three angels' messages, and even before that in the very same chapter, starting in verse 1, it talks about the 144,000. It says that these people who are living at the end of time will not commit adultery. Do you realize we live in a time where probably the most, probably there's two of the two greatest addictions in the Western world. Number one are food. And number two, pornography, right? I mean, you know, this is just a reality, these two things. And so we live at a time where it is easier than any other time in earth's history to commit adultery. 
It used to be you actually, I mean, sure, you could think about it in your head. You could just imagine it. Um, that's always been possible. But, and there were times in earth's history where they had temple prostitutes, and so that was very possible too. But then you had to at least go to the temple. You know what I mean? Like you had to actually go be with somebody. But now you don't need to do that. There's just, you know, internet and phones, and you can, you can just find this stuff anywhere. But the Bible says that regardless of that fact, that there's going to be a group of people who are not defiled with women. So regardless of what someone's personal experience, God's going to bring a group of people to find victory over these temptations, right? Revelation 14 says this group of people have no guile found in their mouth. Then it says something that's almost crazy. It says that they are without fault before the throne of God. Isn't that hard to believe? I mean, to be honest with you. Be honest with yourself. Do you think, oh, that, yeah, yeah. Well, the reality is the only way we could be without fault is by the grace of God, right? That's the only way. But God said it's going to happen, so even if my experience doesn't line up with it as it should, right, which probably, I'm guessing if you look back over the week, you would, none of us would say, yeah, my, my, I fully, I, I fulfilled that, I'm, I'm doing pretty good there, right? But, but the fact is, is God says that he is going to have a group of people who will fulfill that. And, you know, just like Abraham, I love Romans chapter 4 where it talks about Abraham. It says, And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. When he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. So God tells him, you're going to have a child. And the Bible says he didn't check with his body. Because if he would have checked, he would have realized it was as good as dead. And so was his wife. Have you heard of any 90-year-olds having babies anytime recently? No. So Abraham, the text goes on to say, it tells us that he believed in God. He believed that God could work miracles. And so it says that as he believed in God, God counted it to him for righteousness. This righteousness by faith. So he gained the victory. So I can't trust in my own experience. I trust in the Lord that he is the one that can bring about. If he said he's going to have a people like this, I won't trust my experience. I'll trust that God can fulfill what he said. So God is going to have a group of people. So what we're doing right now is we're simply studying. We see, okay, God is going to have a people. And the Bible even specified the time period of when this would be fulfilled. It was after 1844. Now, we don't have time to study that out tonight, Daniel chapter 8. But Revelation chapter 10 tells us the same thing. Look there with me for a moment. Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. Looking at these people that God were studying about the identity of God's people, that he's going to have a people. And I'll bet, I'll bet some of you were raised in families who your, your family might have told you that God has a remnant who keep the commandments of God, have the, keep, have the faith of Jesus. They have the testimony of Jesus Christ, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But in Revelation chapter 10, it tells us about God's people. Some of the identity of these people. Revelation chapter 10, beginning in verse 7. Can someone read verse, verses seven, or verses five and six rather, out loud? Okay, so here we have this passage talking about a very specific time in Earth's history when there would be time no longer. It talks about it in the context of the Sabbath because it's quoting a portion of the Sabbath commandment, right? 
the one who created the heavens, the earth, the seas, and these things. So we have this, in the context of people in the last days, keeping the Sabbath holy, it says that there would be time, there would be chronos no longer, there would be chronology no longer. That, that We know that if we've studied this, this is, you know, we don't have time to go into any detail on this this evening. But there comes a time where after a certain time period, there's no more biblical time prophecies, right? There's no more time prophecies after 1844. Well, what happens after that time period we read in the verse, the next verse, verse 7? Can someone, can someone else read verse 7? Okay, so during the sounding of this trumpet, which is after the end of biblical time prophecy, the Bible says something is going to happen. It says the mystery of God should be finished, as he has declared to his servants the prophets. Now, what does this mean? So God is going to have a group of people who finish the mystery of God. We could do a whole study on the mystery of godliness, but we'll just look at one text. Look with me in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We're looking at the identity of this group of people. Colossians chapter 1 gives us more insight into the identity of God's people in the last days. Colossians chapter 1, right toward the end of the chapter, Paul says in verse 25, Paul says, Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest to his saints. So here's a mystery that's been hid for years, for generations. But now what does it say? Read to, can someone read verse 27 for me? Thank you. So it says that what is this mystery? It says this mystery which is shown among the Gentiles, which is Christ, what? In you. In you the hope of glory. So Revelation tells us that after 1844, so here we have a time period. Jesus was given a time period. In Daniel chapter 9, it specified an exact time period when the Messiah would be baptized in 27 AD. It specified the exact year he would be crucified in 31 AD. And then it specified what would take place during that ministry. So too, in the end of time, God prophesied that there would be a group of people after 1844 when there would be time no longer And this group of people, they'd keep the commandments of God, they'd have the faith of Jesus, the testimony of Jesus, or the spirit of prophecy. The Bible says all of these characteristics, these identify God's people at the end of time. But then it says these would be the people who finish the mystery. What does that mean? That means they are finishing, revealing to the world the mystery of godliness, which is Christ in us. That Jesus is fulfilling his mission to planet earth as it goes to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. As that message goes forth, he's showing the world who he is through the lives of his people. Isn't that beautiful? And you see, identity, you probably heard something, you know, like identity strengthens mission. But mission also strengthens identity. And so as we discover our identity, just like Jesus, Jesus discovered who he was, and then he studied those passages. He begins his ministry by saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Mark 1, 15. So he says this, and so too in our lives, as we study the word of God, as we spend time in the word of God, we can be changed by it. We can be transformed by the word of God. And as we read it, 
we recognize who we are called to be, and we are called to be representatives of Jesus Christ. That we are to replicate his character, not, not just by our, you know, toughing it out, not just by being better people ultimately, or just eating the right thing, but all of these things are to happen. But God is calling us to be changed by, in every way. You say, wow, food, I mean, these things don't matter. Well, in, in a way they do, because 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, whether therefore you eat or you drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. God wants to have a people who in all ways are revealing his character to planet Earth. And so as we discover, number one, this week, that we are in Bible prophecy, that we are identified, that God identifies a group of people as they discover their, their identity. They can study that identity, which is perfectly shown in the life of Jesus Christ. And as we behold it, we become changed into it, but then we can go out to also fulfill the Word of God. I'm going to close with a story about a lady by the name of Corey Tinboom. Any, actually, before I tell the story, does anybody have any thoughts they would like to add? Any thought that came to you that you thought, oh, this, this would fit perfectly? And it's okay if you don't. How many of you have heard of Cory Tenboom? Okay, most of us. Anybody read the book, The Hiding Place? That is one of the best written books I've ever read in my entire life. That book is, outside of the Bible and Spirit of Prophecy, that book is, it's one of those books you read and you think, man, someone, I mean, just the, just the writing itself, not, the story's amazing, but the writing is just, wow. There's something about it that's just amazing. It's called The Hiding Place, where uh, Corey and her family hid Jews in a secret uh, compartment of their house that was designed. Uh, they just made a false wall so that they would hide the Jews there. They were not Jewish themselves, but they, were, they owned a... a, a clock shop and they were just hiding Jews. Well, I'm going to tell you a story she doesn't tell in that book. I read about it. Uh, she, she shares a story of how, she, I mean, she was later, you, if you've read The Hiding Place, you realize she was thrown in a concentration camp for hiding Jews. Her father was also and her sister. Her sister and her father all died in the concentration camp. She, though, ended up living through till the end of the war. She made it through when the, uh, you know, the United States liberated them and so forth. She came out. She went on to become a missionary. Uh, she, not of our faith, but this woman, she was a godly, godly woman. And she, she went forth to do mission work in different areas. And one of the areas specifically that she went was Africa. And she tells a story of in, in the 70s, how she went into a specific country. What happened was, in this specific country, the government changed and they, uh, the government then called in a group of Christians to the government office. And when they arrived at the government office, they killed them. The next day, they called another group of Christians to the government office, and they executed that group. The third day, they did the same thing. And right around the third or fourth day, Corey arrived in this country to share the gospel of Jesus with these people who were going to their deaths. And Corey comes to speak, you know, about Jesus and to try to comfort these people. And she's preaching to them. And as she's preaching to them, they're, they're, she notices, because you can tell when you're preaching. I know Jeffrey knows this. You can tell when people aren't listening. You know, you're preaching and people are like, you know, or this or, you know, whatever. Like, you can tell. 
Well, she's over in Africa, and, she's, she, and it wasn't a nice place like this, you know, with air conditioning. It was, a, it was a room with no screens and with like a naked light bulb with the flies, you know, flying around it. And she's preaching to these people, and she noticed that nobody's listening. They're literally doing this. They're looking back at this person over here, and they're thinking, is she the next one to die? Is he the next one to be executed? Will I be the next person to lose my life? She noticed it. And she realized, what I'm sharing is not touching anybody. And you know what she did? She just stopped right there. She just changed her sermon immediately. And she began to tell them a personal experience of how back during the, as the war was coming on, back when she was younger, she spoke to her father because fear gripped her, because she thought, I may have to become a martyr for Jesus. But fear gripped her heart so much, she said to her dad, she went to her father, and she said, Dad, she said, I'm so afraid. She said, I, I, I don't think I have enough faith to die and be a martyr for Jesus. And Corey's wise Dutch father, he said, Corey, when we go for a trip into Amsterdam, when we go, when we go on, get on the train, we make our way into Amsterdam, how much before we get on the train, how far before we get on the train do I give you the money? Do I give it to you three days beforehand? And she said, no. He said, well, when do I give you the money? And, he, and she said, you give it to me right before we get on the train. And her father said, that's the exact way it is with the faith of a martyr. That if God calls you to be a martyr, if God calls you to be a martyr, I mean, he's not calling, if, if he's not calling you today, he doesn't need to give you a martyr's faith today. But if he gives you, if he calls you to be a martyr, he will give you a martyr's faith. And Corey is telling this story to the room. But now as they're listening, now as they're listening, they turn back and forth. But instead of looking with fear and trepidation at each other in that room, now they're looking forth with smiles on their face, on their faces. Their, their faces are just beaming with joy. They're, they're actually happy now. They recognize that, yeah, we may lose our lives, but Jesus will give us the strength to be martyrs right unto the end. He'll give us the strength. I interviewed Nico Butoy for a documentary we were producing, and, and he was uh, an Adventist minister in Romania, and he was tortured for his faith. He was starved for almost 50 days. The only food he had during those 50 days were other soldiers, or other prisoners, I should say, felt so bad for him, they would just hide crumbs and they could get some crumbs to him. But he said by this point, he was literally passing out. He was dying. He, I mean, they did things like uh, they put handcuffs on him, and they stomped on them, and they were so tight that his hands turned black. And he said he cried for the first time while he was in prison after that happened, and he thought, I'll never be able to play the violin again. And then he told us, I was never very good at the violin anyway. But for whatever reason, that made him cry for the first time. But I asked him, because as, as he was telling us these stories about this torture he went through, I, I, I was thinking, this guy's a Navy SEAL. You know who the Navy SEALs are? They're like the toughest of the tough of the American, uh, you know, military-type forces, Navy specifically. So the, these people are, are the toughest of the tough. They will just die for country. They just, they're, they're probably people who, they're not going to divulge secrets. They're, they'll just die because they believe in, in the United States of America. There's certain people that, like them that are really tough, and then maybe there's people like, you know, me, right? And so I wondered, was Nico one of these people? Was he a, a you know, Navy SEAL, and I'm just, you know, Chad Cruiser? 
And so I asked him, I said, are you just someone who can just take torture? You can just take this? You're just a really strong person. And his, he just, I mean, he wasn't a very big guy even. And he's sitting in front of me and he's smiling at me and he says, not at all. He said, I hate going through punishment or torture or whatever. He said, but Jesus gave me the strength to endure. And Corey went through the very same thing. She, went, she received the strength to endure. And these people, as they heard this, they began to just break out into a song. And you may have heard the song. It says, In the sweet by and by, we shall meet, what? On that beautiful shore. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. And then she wrote down these words in 1974. Oh, yeah, thank you. My wife's helped me remember the story. About two weeks later, half of that congregation was executed. And within another month, the rest of the congregation lost their lives to that government. Corey later wrote these words. She said, but I must tell you something. I was so happy that the Lord used me to encourage these people. For unlike many of their leaders, I had the Word of God. I had been to the Bible and discovered that Jesus said He had not only overcome the world, but to all those who remain faithful unto the end, He would give a crown of life. But then notice what she says. Here's a woman who's been through torture. She went through her own time of trouble. And notice what she said for you and for me to prepare for that time. She said this. How can we? She didn't believe in some secretive rapture where we'll be snatched away from all our trials. She knew the time in the future would be a time of trials and tribulation. She said, how can we get ready for the persecution? First, we need to feed on the word of God. Digest it. Make it a part of our being. This will mean disciplined Bible study each day as we not only memorize long passages of Scripture, but put the principles to work in our lives. So this woman says, if if you're going to prepare, if you're going to be ready for the future, if you're going to be ready to be the people God is calling in the last days, you need to be spending time, how often, in the Word of God? Every day. Not missing a day. And as you're reading it, you're discovering who you're called to be. You're discovering what is to be your new identity in Christ. And she says not only that, but memorizing passages of Scripture so that you have them during the time of trial. They can be a, a blessing to you not only in some future t- you know, time of trouble, per se, but even in the trials that you'll go through tomorrow, the next day, the time of temptation, and the times of joy. So friends, I want to challenge you to, number one, be in the Word of God. And I want to even challenge you to store up God's Word. Take some time. Find some Bible promises that are maybe for the temptations you struggle with. Or that might be an encouragement to somebody else. But to spend time in the Word of God and become the people that we are called to be. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have a group of people that are specified in Scripture, that are identified time and again. We recognize Jesus discovered who He was. He studied it. He fulfilled the prophecies. Father, I pray that we will discover who we are called to be, 
that we will study your word and that we would choose to live out and fulfill prophecy. We may feel I'm not worthy, and the fact is we're not. We may feel I can't do it, and the reality is we can't. But we have a God who is all-powerful. We can say I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Father, I pray that we... Before I go any further, if there's someone here who has not been reading your Bible consistently, you've not been spending time daily in the Word of God, but you want to make a, a covenant with God, and you say, I want to spend time, I want to, I want to find out what it's all about, I want to, I want to actually experience this born-again experience the Bible talks about. I want to spend time daily in His Word. If that's your desire and you have not been spending time consistently in His Word, you say, Jesus, I want to make a covenant to spend time daily in Your Word. Would you raise your hand just where you are right now? God sees all of your hands. Maybe someone makes just just another thing that maybe you'd like to take a challenge to try to memorize two verses of Scripture per week maybe over the course of the next two months, 16 verses over the course of two months. Is there any, anyone who would like to maybe try to store up some of God's Word in your mind and in your heart? You want to take that challenge. Is there anybody here just by the raising of your hand? God sees all the hands. Father, I pray that we would become the people of the book again, that we would fulfill Revelation chapter 14, that we would be the people who are transformed by the word of God, by Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.